Hello and welcome to this mini-series from Charter Morris, Lessons from Leaders in Life Science. I'm today's host, Jack McLean. My focus here at CM Life Science is the bioinformatics space. I'm using this mini-series to share insights from my network and industry leaders in the space as they discuss their climb to the top. In today's episode, I speak with Jake Lamville, co-founder of Distributed Bio, acquired by Charles River and co-founder of Centervax, and Stephanie Weisner, fellow co-founder of Centervax and life science startup expert. Hope you enjoy listening. Yeah, Jake and Stephanie, thank you for joining me. Really appreciate the time. Um, obviously, really excited to learn a little bit more about your guys' story. Talk a bit about the book as well um, and go from there, really. Hey, thanks for having us on. That's fun. No worries. No worries. Good stuff. So just to kick us off, um, I guess we'll start with Jake. Just give the listeners a little bit of background on yourself, um, how you've got to where you are today, what you're doing currently, things of that nature. Sure. So hi, everyone. I, my name is Jake Glanville. I'm a computational immune engineer and a serial biotech entrepreneur. Uh, I son of uh, innkeepers, grew up in Guatemala on Lake Atitlan, came back to the States to do computational biology and immune engineering. I worked for four years at Pfizer, where I was developing methods for using high throughput sequencers to analyze the immune system uh, in immunizations in vivo, but also in vitro and something called antibody display libraries. Uh, after four years there, I, I did two things in parallel. I um, uh, joined a PhD program uh, in computational systems immunology at Stanford. And at the same time, I launched my first company, Distributed Bio, where we were applying these computational methods to enhance antibody discovery. So at Distributed Bio, we ran 78 programs, eight of the top 10 pharma were clients, um, and, and we never had to raise venture capital. It was always profitable. This was a, a reasonable breakthrough in terms of the efficiency of discovering antibodies. And so a lot of groups were working with us. And that was ultimately acquired by Charles River Laboratories at the end of 2020. Um, in academia, I worked on you know, lots of cool new technology that's come about from the golden age of biotech to interrogate the immune system and the secret little nooks and crannies that define why we produce good immune responses, but sometimes why we fail. Uh, in the beginning of 2021, uh, Concurrent with the spin out, we transferred over a technology that I'd been incubating and distributed bio for six years to a new company, Centivax. And um, Stephanie and I are co-founders as well as some other co-founders. And the focus of Centivax is creating universal vaccines. Fantastic. Cheers for that, Jake. And Stephanie, again, for those listening, just a little bit of background on yourself, um, a bit of, you know, before you co-founded Centivax and, and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. So my start really began with just an interest in basic science and an interest in seeing it translated to benefit real people. And I very quickly fell in love with lab work. And I loved the fact that um, in academic research, you got to ask these really innovative questions and you got to see how systems worked. And by understanding that there were huge implications for treating untreated diseases. And I was very excited by that. But it didn't take me very long to realize that the purpose of academia was not necessarily to translate things out of the lab, but rather to get grants, to publish, to share learning. And that was great, but I really wanted to be on the translation side. So I thought to myself, maybe I want to go to medical school because you're working with people and it's a way to see innovation actually impact real people. And so I thought the quickest way to see if I wanted to be a doctor was to become a medical scribe. 
So that's what I did. I shadowed a doctor around all of her appointments and I got to see all of the patient interactions and keep all the patient notes and some of the billing stuff. What I saw was twofold. Number one, that the doctor was severely limited as to what she could do for patients by the medicines that exist. And second, I realized that there were so many diseases for which we have no really great treatment options. And those two things together made me wonder if there might be something that could bridge that two-sided problem, where on the one hand, there were patients that needed new medicines, and on the other, there were potential new medicines uh, sitting in research labs without a path to real-world application. Mm -hmm. And so I, around that time, got a totally random email from my alma mater, Cornell University, and it said entrepreneurial training for scientists in the subject line. And... I, at, the point, at that point, had never taken a single business class. My philosophy at the time was kind of, well, business is about money, and I'm not really interested in money, so I, why would I be interested in business? And it turned out I wasn't totally wrong. Um, <laughs> business is about money, but you don't get money if you're not solving a real problem for people. And I realized that entrepreneurship and startups could be a really effective mechanism for bringing some of those innovations to real people. And so that's what I... That's what I realized through that program. Uh, I ended up ultimately going to get my MBA from University of Chicago. I started a bio um, consulting firm. And so I worked with a lot of entrepreneurs in the early stages and got to see a lot of different um, types of companies and kind of observe uh, various things that worked and didn't work. And I also spent a few years with Arch Venture Partners where I got to learn under the co-founder and managing director. and from all of that, I kind of realized a new, a new problem, which was that there's a set of academic entrepreneurs that did really well. And there's a set of academic entrepreneurs that didn't do really well, or scientific entrepreneurs rather. And there is something that separated the two of them, which is that the ones that were really good did this thing that I ultimately called in my book, Building Backwards, which was understanding that you were working towards a specific product and a broader end goal, which was impacting patients through developing a real product mm -hmm. and staying focused on that. And so through a couple hundred hours of interviews, I published a book, Building Backwards Biotech, which um, I think you kindly read. Yeah. And um, it's been really cool to see that be picked up by multiple major research universities across the country as bioentrepreneurship curriculum mm. um, and just get to see how it resonates with students and professors that really do want to see their research impact people, but they don't know how to do it. They don't know how biotech works. They don't know how the market works. Yeah. And I think it's really important to empower scientists to actually be um, understanding of the business and to be able to lead their companies because they understand their technology. Yeah, definitely. Um, and as you referenced, I, I've just finished the book. Um, really good read. And I think even for those who aren't involved in, in biotech as such, just from like a commercialization standpoint and setting up a company, the idea of starting a business with an end goal in mind and kind of building backwards. Um, what I think is an interesting dynamic, obviously, Jake, a company that you um, co-founded previously was acquired. Um, and I'm curious, you know, before meeting Stephanie, had you started um, distributed with the goal of getting acquired in mind? Because I know that the book suggests that maybe that's not always the best practice. Or is it one of them where you started it up, it did really well, and, and as a byproduct was then acquired? Yeah. So my philosophy on this, and there's other legitimate ones, is that you build a company, when you start managing, 
imagining starting to create a company, you should do exactly what Stephanie said, which is build backwards. You should imagine what is the value that I'm creating and what are those in, inflection points of something useful? Why am I doing it? You, you don't want to just wander around because things look cool. That's a terrible way to build a business. That's how businesses fail. You want to say, <laughs> where is this worth something? What am I building towards? And that means that at every point, I always have in my mind a value of like, what value am I at? At what point would someone come to me and knock on my door and offer me an amount of money where I'd say yes? I always have that number in my head. Hmm. And I know what that number, how that number changes as I move forward. Yeah. And you're always maintaining relationships. They could be for partnerships. They should be collaborations, but they're they're testing the waters of your to check your work on perceived value. So hmm. yeah, when we launched Distributed Bio, I mean, I had a plan. The plan was... It was actually written on the stereotypical napkin at a, at a Thai <laughs> restaurant. Unfortunately, I didn't keep the napkin, but it was uh, three verticals. Um, first, to uh, create an Amazon cloud distributed computational um, analysis platform to enable people to do what I was doing at the time um, and some pioneering work to use deep sequencing instruments to better understand the immune system, looking at the anti millions of antibodies or hundreds of millions and hundreds of millions of T cells and make some sense out of it. And practically to isolate drugs. Uh, that was the first stage. Um, the second tier, which was more work to build and uh, more expensive to build, but much more valuable was to then start offering a service of discovery to build a technology that could better using that data to more rapidly discover antibodies. Mm. And the third was to use those two stacks of technology. Both had been vetted by the market and, and built so that people would use it and come back and use it again. So you're kind of building a pyramid on rocks um, would be to build our own therapeutics and, and vaccines. And we largely followed that path, that, that building trajectory. The thing that happened in the middle was that the, the first and second items were sufficiently profitable that we were able to sell that part of the business. And that kind of made sense to me when we did the acquisition. Um, I knew that we had matured the internal stuff enough to create the universal vaccine technology that it made sense to pivot the focus to that. Um, and in a, in a company where you're, you're quite profitable and that's where you get your bread and butter. Um, it sometimes is difficult to transition a company from, from uh, a CRO style business to a therapeutics business. And so an acquisition was kind of an ideal way to create that separation to be able to say, okay, we built the spaceship. Now we can sell the launch pad now that we're in orbit. And so, so they came along they wanted the business. It was a good time to, it enabled you to, to reshuffle a team because you actually need a different kind of group of people to be able to go drive something up through clinical development compared to the group of people that would do a large number of antibody discovery programs. And, and I also felt that we were ahead of the competition and what we were doing, but I think it was a good time to sell because I saw their competition catching up. Um, and so for all those reasons, uh, CRL came along. They're a great organization. I felt that the technology, we went in good hands with them and it was a good time for us to go conduct the transition. And I always had that number in mind. So when they came, I knew how to ne negotiate it. And I also knew what I wanted to keep, which is that third stage, the, the kind of holy grail of the work, a universal vaccine technology. And so we spun that out at that time. That's, that's how, how I think about it. I kind of always want to know what's on the horizon, what we're worth now, so that when those sorts of questions come in, you don't miss an opportunity by failing to ideate over the multiple opportunity, the, the opportunity trajectory and the inflection points. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I think obviously Stephanie, it looks like from, from the book and, and things like that, that you did a lot of advising for startups and founders have an early stage biotech. So 
between the two of you guys, you obviously have a lot of um, stories, I would guess, a lot of tips and tricks. What would be, you know, from either or and or both, what would be some key pointers for someone who's maybe starting a company and maybe they haven't started with that end goal in mind? Maybe they've started with the goal of, you know, I would just want to get acquired. What would be some tips and tricks and guidance for you um, or that you could provide to them to say, you know, this is how you should really be looking at it? Yeah, uh, well, honestly, I think where the biggest place that companies fail is actually before they start. Hmm. What I mean by that is I think that there are some basic tenants that kind of need to be there in a company for it to be funded, for it to make it to clinic, for it to succeed, that kind of need to be thought about at the very beginning. And a lot of times people just don't think about it, whether it's because they don't know, they're coming from academia, they're not used to thinking about things in the business realm. Um, or whatever else, I've seen a lot of companies that, you know, are crawling along and trying to make it. And a lot of times I look at them and I see that there's these problems that were there from day zero and they just didn't know, but it doesn't come back to bite them until years potentially down the road. Mm -hmm. And so some examples of that would be like intellectual property. Like I think a lot of academics don't totally understand how important that intellectual property is. And a lot of academic spin outs by no fault of their own, are not actually the ones handling the patents themselves. They're handing it off to the tech transfer office and the tech transfer office is incentivized to publish as many patents as possible. This is speaking in, in general terms. Um, and so they're not necessarily inclined to fight with the USPTO over the broadest claims possible. It's easier to get like a more narrow patent because less argument. But the problem with that is then that's the IP you're building your company on and that can prevent you from getting funded down the road or even getting acquired. And you're accidentally or unknowingly inhibiting the likelihood of that happening on day zero. And so things like that are the reason why I think building backwards can be a very powerful strategy. Yeah. Another example in that category is starting a company that doesn't have a big enough end market to excite investors. Because investors are looking for a certain return on their investment. Mm. And if the upside scenario is still too small to make it worthwhile for them or to make it worthwhile for you and the amount of equity you'd have to give away, then that just, you know, can't, yeah. may not make sense. But then you still need to raise a certain amount of funding to get there. And, you know, you can, it could potentially work through non dilutive or something. But I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs try and start um, a company around their academic research that's a very narrow focus and just not big enough to excite investors yeah no that's really helpful and, and anything from yourself jake to add on that anything that stephanie maybe didn't cover yeah so first a, an amusing parallel um with building backwards to biotech it reminds me of uh, a nobel prize that was awarded in chemistry organic chemistry where they have this thing called reverse synthesis where if you want to build something you imagine it at its end state and you work backwards on the steps and that turns out to be much better than sort of fanning forwards um yeah. in, in many cases so I, that's i agree and that's how to, how to think about these things um from starting a company yeah i think it's counterintuitive to for startups to focus on ip because it can be eye-wateringly expensive and, and there's a tendency to kick the can down a road and deal with it later. And, and the system is very complicated. And especially, you know, I'm, I know lots of smart academics, so there's obviously exceptions to these things, but you can be smart and ignorant at the same time, right? You yeah. can be myopic. Um, but the tendency is to, in academia, like your time is cheap and reagents are expensive. And so that 
uh, causes you to prioritize doing things in a certain way that I don't think is true in a business where time is actually the expensive part and and reagents are comparatively cheap and all of that stuff looks cheap compared to IP. Hmm. And so I think that is an important thing that uh, needs to be addressed early. I think the other part that's not clear is that when you look at a laboratory, the va- what is the value of the entity, right? The value of the laboratory really is the like the quality of the research being released, the reputation and cachet of the professor and the institution, and then the team members that are there. And for a company, no, <laughs> the primary value of the company is the intellectual property. Hmm. That is like at the beating heart of the entire entity. That's what makes it that because when someone asks you, okay, what stops someone else from saying, waiting for you to build something and going, cool, I'll copy it. I'll skip all the hard work you did on figuring out how to make it work. And we'll just copy the exact system. And the answer is intellectual property. And so you have to attend to the beating heart of the organization and you have to have a plan up front. Like, is this defendable? Mm-hmm. Or am I building something that I'm going to do all the work, the tech dev, and then someone else is just going to copy it over, uh, which is disastrous and it's going to limit your ability to raise. And that means you have to be willing, like we spend, I think I spend equal to or more on IP than I do on laboratory operations, which is crazy, but it's that's that is the value of the business. And that stuff really starts mattering when you get into uh, discussions of an MA because people want to know, okay, like what's the basis of what you built? How much are you making? And how do you stop someone else from just scooping your market out from under you by, by copying you and undercutting? And, and that's the answer. So I, I completely agree. Yeah. So IP essentially is, and it does reference that in the book as well. Um, <clears throat> for those who haven't listened, but it, it sounds like IP is kind of the, the foundation of, of pretty much any successful biotech company. Um, and then they're buying you. Yeah. When you're being bought, you're being bought first for your intellectual property. And then second, depending on the nature of what you're building, the team sometimes does not matter. And you're actually literally being bought for the intellectual property. More commonly, they're, they're, the team also matters and they want to retain the team either for a period in order to ensure transition or for a longer capacity. And that really depends on whether your company is a golden egg or a golden goose. Um, if you are a platform, they want the team to come forward. Um, be, and they want to have have the team around as well because it's not just the IP around the platform, but it's the technical and know-how, this this million things that aren't written down that they want to make sure to absorb as well, so that the, the graft sticks. Mm. And then the extreme example, like distributed bio, the team really mattered there because it was also an operational functioning unit that could crank through a whole bunch of antibody discovery. Mm. Um, and so, I th- but I, I think in all of those cases, IP comes first, then the team may or may not matter. Um, and, and I think that's counterintuitive when people are starting, but they, that needs to be the attitude when you're building a business. It's like, what's the unique thing that I can do? And it's also not obvious on big businesses versus small businesses, right? Because like, if you look around and you know a restaurant, you're like, well, a restaurant doesn't really have IP, right? You can squabble over someone copying your recipe, but you can't like, go sue them. Yeah. And that's kind of different than when you're building something that's not worth a few million dollars. It's worth hundreds of millions or a billion where IP is the thing that makes mm-hmm. that thing so preposterously valuable yeah yeah definitely no that that is a really interesting point and probably something that a lot of um founders and co-founders take for granted you know if they've never done this before you know maybe they they're not aware of that importance um one thing as well that building backwards to biotech does reference is obviously the kind of executive team that you build the importance of that um aside from that focusing primarily on kind of founders and co-founders what would you guys say, obviously, Jake, you've done this before and Stephanie now with um, Jake, what would you say you've learned about what makes a good co-founder and what really makes that relationship work? You know, is it that one of you has some traits that the other lacks and you're kind of picking up the slack for that other person and one of you shines somewhere else? You know, what makes that dynamic tick? 
Well, that's a great yeah. question. Um, and I want to start out by saying that when in my intro, I got so excited to talk about the book that I forgot to talk about Cenovax. Um, <laughs> so uh, I came into Cenovax with, with Jake and a couple others um, in early 2020. And we built the business for about a year before we formally launched. Um, so I've been there ever since, chief business officer now. And it's been really cool to see the company grow from, you know, this business plan that Jake showed me in 2019, which was like 100 pages long, to an actually functioning company <laughs> with a product that we're rapidly approaching the clinic with. Um, and I just say, um, one of the things that I think is most important about a founding team is kind of what you said, complementary skill sets, um, being able to know when it's appropriate to defer to your co-founders. I think one problem I've definitely seen in the past with startups is that there's someone who has deep, deep experience in these domains that are incredibly important for biotech to work. So for example, I was a part of a company with the founder who was an incredible expert in his scientific field. He had deep experience in industry and clinical trials, and he was also really good with intellectual property. However, there wasn't necessarily a certain business instinct or training in business. And so although the science went really well, the business floundered. And I think the reason for that was many things. One of them, which is in the book as well, is this concept of knowing to build to inflection points like Jake was saying and building backwards from whatever that next exciting data set is and thinking about how to raise and how to get there and all that. And so just something I think that business could have benefited from is it had a little bit of a one person called all of the shots and wasn't necessarily always very open to receiving expertise from people in areas that were complementary. So I said business, but not just business, even like um, raising money, raising capital, feedback on that, or feedback from investors or partners on the positioning of the product. It was sometimes hard for this person to hear that. And I think that's very common. And something I really appreciate about Jake and about our team is that we very much respect each other as professionals. And I think there is this relationship there where we know when to defer to someone else because that's not our expertise. At the end of the day, Jake's CEO. So oftentimes he's the one making calls if everyone's disagreeing. Mm. But at the same time, he's very interested in our input and he's very interested in um, surrounding himself with individuals that know more than him in certain areas. So for example, he hired, in addition to our, our founding team, he's hired a lot of experts for our board and our scientific advisory board that are in their individual areas, complete experts. So for example, we have someone on our SAB who is the former deputy director at FDA and oversaw the approval of like all vaccines that came through his office while he was there. And this guy is a complete expert at the way FDA regulates and thinks about vaccines and vaccine clinical trials. And it's great to have his input. Okay. And it, I think um, part of having a dynamic of this healthy team is knowing when to you know, discuss and maybe disagree and take a different stand, which we also do, but importantly, when to defer. And generally speaking, I see founders having more trouble in the second category because no one is good at everything, hmm. but a lot of times people think they are. Yeah. So that's something I would definitely credit <laughs> our, our team with. <laughs> yeah. And then Stephanie, you 
So you reviewed hundreds of organizations. Did you get any insights from that process as well? I just, I feel like you've had this like anthropological capacity to study huge numbers of groups and like, what else, like what, I'm just curious. I realize I've never asked you that. Yeah, honestly, I think of like the culture of just being able to defer is so, so big. And that was such a big part of it. Um, There was also just, I think in small companies in particular, toxic personalities just can totally ruin an organization, even when the science is good. So I've also seen these, like biotechs can be incredibly political. These people are vying for power as much as they're vying for the asset. And so I've seen like definitely lots and lots of companies where at the end of the day, it's a bit of a, it's a bit about power and it's a bit about importance more than it is about the science. And um, I think like, uh, there's kind of these team dynamics that can form, which again, hopefully not with any of the listeners' companies, but there's these team dynamics that can form where um, you're hiring someone as kind of a figurehead, but you're not actually deferring to their expertise or allowing them to inform the business because it's really about control. And mm-hmm. that can lead to all sorts of other problems, which is, for example, lack of total integrity on data saying you're further ahead than you actually are or trying to paint an experiment in a broader way than is actually fair. So I've seen those sorts of things which then can like directly derail a company as well as situations where the CEO is there to really just be powerful. Um, Or sometimes, of course, there's really successful biotechs that don't have scientific founders or scientific CEOs, but I think I generally speaking, seen a lot more difficult dynamics in teams when the when the CEO really has all the confidence in the world, but actually doesn't understand even basics of science and drug development process. Um, so those are a couple of the things I can think of off the top of my head. I'm sure if I actually sat with this question, I could come up with tons more examples. Yeah, definitely. Jake, would would you mirror that as well, or anything else? To yeah, add? I actually, Stephanie's like which is reading my mind. Um, we think very similarly about this. I, um, my perspective on this come from different sources. Um, some of us just watching my, my parents run a business in the middle of a civil war in Guatemala and like what it took to be successful. And also, you know, I said they're different types of businesses. A restaurant is not a biotech, but there actually are a lot of commonalities of micro businesses and some of the decisions of having a team to build something together as opposed to waiting, wasting metabolism and fighting. And, and just like the properties of someone who makes a successful business, I kind of watched that growing up. And then at my last company, you know, I had a, a it was 60, 60 clients. And so again, it was a little bit of an anthropological study about, okay, we built an antibody for them. Were they going to get into clinic? And I cared because we had, you know, milestones and royalties associated with these things. And that was, there were properties that I observed that I think were associated with very successful teams. And there's some properties that I think were correlated with unsuccessful teams. Um, in my mind, there are like six things that I think uh, I look for in successful team, and obviously in Cinevax, but also when I'm trying to anticipate whether another team is going to be successful, uh, pretty overlapping with Stephanie's. I think the first is there needs to be an ambitious philosophy of optimism. I just think that it is, um, it's okay to have a couple uh, inherent skeptics on the team. I think that's useful, but if you have too many, you're not going to you're not going to create new things. You think you're going to be too cowardly in the next set of steps that are going to be conducted that are necessary to build a business. I think, look, inherently, inherently biotech startups at heart 
are operated by a group of people who believe their delta of risk is much different than everyone else's because they're experts. That mm -hmm. something that most other people think is not possible, they think they can accomplish. And that, that inherently requires a level of optimism to survive the tough days and be able to fight through trying times because you're fighting uphill for a while. Um, so I think that's important. I think the second one is, is what Stephanie said, you have to be able to listen to each other. And this is tied to my third one, which is you need to hire people that are better than you. And that you need to find people that are experts at, at what they do. They're better than you at the thing that they're doing. And that can be intimidating. And I think some people don't like to do that because they fear that they're giving up a certain amount of power or influence, but, but it is essential. There's no person who knows how to do all these things perfectly. You need to find someone who's better than you at that thing. And then once you get them, you have to listen to, to them. Then you need to have a culture where everyone has respect and is able to listen to each other. Mm. Um, the challenge is that you need to have that, but you also need to be able to execute. And so if you, I've seen some groups that they're bad at listening to each other. Those groups, uh, you're just wasting resources at that point. Um, and being, you have lots of blind spots. If really all the decisions are coming down to one person, I don't know why those other people are even there. Uh, but the flip side is you can have a group of people that listen to each other so much that there is a lack of like energetic focus on executing. And so what I do at my companies is sort of the respiration model between the organic and the hierarchical organizational principle, where in the organic phase, we're all talking to each other. I want feedback. We want to take the best possible plan. But then like, there's going to be at one point where we flip the switch. We're like, okay, a decision has been made. Organic is over. Now we're executing. And at that point, it is essential that everyone is able to do that switch from, okay, this is the period where we all bring up ideas to change. But now that we've agreed on it, everyone's going to execute. Um, whether or not all of their points are met. We all have to come around and agree. And, and you want everyone to have buy-in. Like, okay, we agree this is the plan. We've listened to each other. Now we're going to not deviate and execute and be like, well, it didn't do exactly what I wanted. So I'm going to go off and do something else. Because that that is mutiny. <laughs> and you have to fire people when they do that. But so that's the, that's the trick is balancing, being able to hear uh, all the opinions, uh, listen to each other, adapt the plan to the best sets of experts that you have in the room. But then everyone has to agree, okay, this is what we're doing. And now that has to happen. And I think those are the properties of of team members. The last thing is they have to be trustworthy. Um, they're working. We're working in data science. I think if you don't, and and we're working in business exactly to Stephanie's point about toxic culture. You have to trust the people you're working around that they're going to deliver the, the data that they're delivering. Their assessments are accurate, and they're not deviating their their contributions towards the common goal of the company based on self interest rather than based on the needs of the organization. And and I think that can really be addressed by being more generous than you need to, to give better equity positions on to people and to empower people to be listened to. I think those things help. I think that a lot of times when people are fighting for self-interest is that they, the company was cheap. They didn't give them enough equity. And so people are wasting a lot of time figuring out how to give themselves a raise and give themselves better equity. And that's wasting a lot of internal metabolism of the organization rather than everyone pushing in the right direction. So to summarize, Ambitious philosophy and optimism, one, two, listen to each other, three, uh, executing personalities and capacity to execute, four, they need to be better than you at what they do, five, they need to be trustworthy, and then six, no mutiny. Yeah, perfect. No, there's some some really valuable points there, um, and we will just get on to, um, in a moment, a little bit about, you know, I guess, would you advise that someone starts up a biotech company knowing what you know now and having done that? Um, just before we jump onto that, one thing that obviously Stephanie mentioned the, um, and you as well to an extent, Jake, is kind of the advisory board um, type model and, and having like a board of individuals around you to advise. 
Now, I've never started a company, so some of the points you've made there, obviously, I, I can't attest to, but the advisory board um, guidance is something that, that I've personally supported um, to quite a large extent, um, placing advisory board members, you know, kind of executive board seats. And with those companies, we've seen their commercialization and their growth almost double, um, just grow kind of exponentially after they've brought in the right kind of commercial advisors and maybe ex-entrepreneurs, someone like, you know, either of you guys, Jake and Stephanie, to kind of advise them on how to grow um, is something that I've personally seen, you know, a huge benefit of when when placing those people. Um, yeah, I guess knowing what you both now know, having gone through it and, you know, Centervac seemingly being in a good place and, and you guys obviously looking like you, you know, you're safe to an extent, what would you say is, you know, would you advise starting up a biotech company? Has that been particularly stressful? Is there any major life lessons you've learned kind of off the back of it that, that you would maybe give guidance to those looking to do something similar? Stephanie, you want to start? Uh, you can start. I need to think okay. about this one a little bit. <laughs> right, so the question, so two thoughts come to mind. One is strategy around populating an advisory board. And then, um, and the second is advice that I would give. So I think the, Strategy on a populating an advisory board depends on the nature of the company. And, and so I had very different experiences of distributed bio versus uh, Cinevax. With distributed bio, we were building a technology in-house and we, frankly, we were innovating. We were better than everybody else at doing this thing. So we couldn't really bring in advisors on the specific area of the technology. We could bring in advisors that really to us, the most valuable advisors were the ones who could help make sure that the world knew what we were building. And so we emphasized, um, like John Cumbers was on the advisory board of actually both of my companies. He's a ultra networker in the synthetic biology space and knows everybody. And it was just an immense source of connection and network. And I think that is important. That, that's true back to my parents' restaurant in the <laughs> civil war in Guatemala. You can make the best steak, but if nobody knows your restaurant exists, they're not going to come to it. Yeah. And so having the network and the awareness is important. And I think you should always have I think there's a tendency to people to think, oh, the advisory board is like other scientists and like, okay, if they have amazing networks, but like, what if you need a business network? What if you need, you know, you need think about the people you need to tap into, you know, a lot of uh, startups are younger people on average, they just have less robust of a network. And so you need people who know people who can make sure that you connect what you're building with people who, who are interested in it. Um, and so I think that was important. I think otherwise, like we had a pretty lean advisory board for distributed bio because we, we were we were a CRO and we had the benefit of a captive global audience from publications and presentations at, at conferences. So we didn't really need a lot of extra people. That is radically different at Cinevax. Uh, here, we're, we're a vaccine company. That, there's a lot of areas of expertise where you want to tap into. And there's a, you know, there's a history of veterans who've got battle scars from this work for uh, you know, a century. Uh, it's been 200 years worth of uh, vaccine development. We've been producing flu shots since the 1940s, and there's been a lot of uh, technology development. Um, there's a lot of uh, expertise specifically to vaccines that we populate on our SAB. These people also know people. There's expertise in uh, broadly neutralizing antibodies. There's expertise in immunology. We need expertise, again, in, in networking with the, the community and, and of of big pharmas and academics, these various groups that we need to talk to. We need expertise at the, the FDA, as Stephanie was just mentioning. So like, I think that is a really powerful 
source of an advisory board is a bunch of people who are, again, are better than you at the thing that they know, and they know a bunch of people in the area where you need to go talk to people. And, and as an example of the FDA, I think there's this bad habit in Silicon Valley. A couple of companies were like, we, we're going to go disrupt the FDA. And like, that is a stupid idea. No, what you want to do is you want to play the FDA game the way they like to have it played. Of course, you want to say, look, I'm building new things. Can we accommodate some changes? But you do not want to go in and try to change the FDA's good, <laughs> excellent model of making sure people are safe and that they have a certain way they like to do things. And you should understand that and come with respect to that system. And there's no better way of doing that than having someone who, who knows that system because they've lived in it and to make sure that we're coming and, and we're producing something ambitious where we're saying, okay, you tell us how you want to do this in a way that makes you happy FDA. That's one example of why uh, an SAB member is excellent. Um, to wrap up with respect to the second half of the question, um, advice I would give, I, it depends on the nature of the company. I think a lot of it, you just heard from Stephanie and I, on company founding, I think there's a lot of things that people waste time on because they're not used to it because it's so many different moving parts. I think there's, you know, I've done two companies now. Um, I'm, I'm on a board of a third. I, I, the advice I give to that company, it really comes down to how to waste way less time on setting up all the, the, the corporate documents, the government's documents. It doesn't need to be a super time consuming process and, and it's complicated, but you can make that much more efficient. I think there's certain things that you need to set up with in terms of like your accounting, your data organization, the strategies for hiring, um, prioritization of events, Gantt charting, budgeting, being aware that you can outsource things rather than trying to do everything internally and to make sure you, uh, you balance that calculation, when and how to fundraise and what sort of financial instrument to use for fundraising. I think these are it's a bunch of little things, but they all add up to be the difference between a, a real efficient boot of a very clean company and then something just kind of like messy and catastrophic. I think I've also seen, I don't know, lots of weird ideas. I probably had some of these weird ideas on how to effectively like distribute and share equity as opposed to like what's market, what's generous, what's ridiculous, what what is going to bite you in the leg later if you set something up in motion that sort of poisons the value of the company in the future. And so I think those are the kinds of advice that are important in the beginning. And then after that, it's just like, okay, guys, like figure out how to focus and execute and don't get distracted. Um, be able to change tack as the data changes, make sure you're thorough and you're focusing on data and you're telling a consistent story, but you need to execute. You can't just do this thing. I hate, I hate the thing where these companies go, if we have enough money, we can just tell a magic story and then the data can really lag the story and that's okay. Like that's not my philosophy. I think you should build things that work and make sure people know that. And because um, life is long, this is a small industry and people know your reputation. And then, and I think that's benefited us because so many people have used the antibodies we produced and, and we've collaborated with what we produced with the vaccines. And so people know, yeah, they, these guys are making something real. And I think making sure that the technology is not lagging the story, I think is another thing I would just encourage people to really lock in on and to, to, to squelch the tendency of um, idolizing CEOs that paint a magical story that's beyond the reality of the product. Perfect. Cheers for that, Jake. And, and Stephanie, anything additional um, from yourself or? Yeah. Yeah. So Jake made me think of a couple of things. I totally, I totally agree. Um, having integrity is, is such a big deal in, in this industry because reputation is everything and it's a small world. You're probably going to work with or run into these people that you're, you're working with now across your whole career. And um, unfortunately, integrity is sometimes lacking in people. And so I think it's important to, 
at the end of the day, like there's many good traits and, and the people you can work with. But to me, the most important one is integrity. Um, and to me, I rank that above other qualities such as lots and lots of experience and, um, and other things like that. Uh, because at the end of the day, even if you have tons of experience, if you're not going to be honest and operate in an honest way, then that experience is only so meaningful. Um, so then the one thing I just add to what Jake said um, on the topic of overselling is, and I know that we agree on this point because we always talk about it, there's also a risk of underselling. The difference between academia and even industry is startups have to be exciting or people aren't going to take risk. You have to be able to sell what you're building and paint a very rosy horizon that people want to jump in on or you're not going to get funded. You're not going to get acquired. You're not going to be able to attract the talent you need to succeed. And I think that's something Jake does very well. Um, but speaking as the daughter of two PhDs, um, I know, generally speaking, that scientists who are honest tend to like to um, be so exact and precise about what they're saying that sometimes the tendency can be to undersell. Um, so you do have to be able to kind of have that balance between being totally honest about what's there while still being willing to and able to talk about implications of the data that you have today. Mm -hmm. So um, that's something I've definitely seen and personally worked with a lot of scientific founders that just cannot do that. They have to be so exact that they can't ever paint a picture or they're on the total other side where they're like in la la land painting pictures and they don't actually have data that backs that up. So I think it's a fragile balance. It's definitely something to be refined over time. And even just in writing my book, that was a balance that I myself was striking because when your audience is scientists, you have to think very carefully about um, being exact and precise with your language. However, I also wanted to impart some of these bigger concepts and ideas um, around building backwards, yes, but also around the fact that this industry we're in has such enormous potential to impact people's lives. And being too hypey about that is never going to work and sit well. But if you don't talk about that, then it's hard to get that excited about what we're doing. And so it's definitely a balance that we're constantly mm. striking when we're pitching that I strike when I write. Um, and I think it's it's something that I'd love to see more scientists understand a little bit better. I think that scientific founders, if they learned how to do that well, they could be extremely effective. Yeah, definitely. No, there's some some really valuable points there um, from both sides. And obviously, you know, two people who have who've done it, have been there and done it. Um, you know, Jake previously with Distributed and obviously Stephanie, your kind of advice and guidance to companies prior to Centervax all kind of comes together to create, um, you know, what I imagine will is and, and will eventually be a, a huge success of Centervax. Um, yeah, look, I, I really appreciate you guys taking the time because I appreciate you're both extremely busy. Um, but yeah, any kind of final thoughts for the listeners on, you know, how to kind of finish off if they're starting up something new and, and any kind of final thoughts? Or do you think we've covered everything there? Because yeah, we have people come to us sometimes and ask us like, hey, we're thinking about starting a company. I think that happened to us the day before yesterday, Stephanie, when we were at that event, um, the, the, the M&A event. Um, and I think that my advice is usually the same. It's that because people come in and they, it sometimes surprises me the questions that 
they're asking about implies that they're focusing on things that I don't think matter that much, or at least should not be their first priority when they're mm-hmm. starting to think about the company. I, um, I'll give you an example. Someone came up and they're like, hi, I got this like new idea for this new tech. I was just wondering, like, do you have like you know, certain laboratory reagents that I could borrow to go test something out? And I'm thinking about doing it. I'm, you know, I've got a couple ideas of where to raise money from and, and it's like, okay, that's good. But like, I asked a couple questions of like, okay, so what's the, what is the market size for this? Um, how long is it going to take to build it? Um, do you have a sense of the scale of the costs and what's the first meaningful inflection point? You're, you know, just basic, like, should you even embark on the journey? I think you need to like at least sketch out a vague map of where you're going and what the purpose of your journey is. And and then a little, I think also the one is a little soul searching. I think that I also tell people, like, I think there's a couple of people where I've, I don't know them and who am I to, to judge someone else's life? But like, you know, based on some impressions, I, I sometimes can say, I, I just, I want you to go to a beach and look out at the ocean. And I want to ask yourself whether this is the thing that's going to be able to make you feel fulfilled and happy because building a biotech takes longer, is more painful and, um, is going to involve more frustrating days and it's, and it's going to involve days of anxiety because you're building uphill. This is a very different experience than working at a company. I think that a company, you're going to have a different level of, of security um, and you will have a different level of influence. It is definitely true that with a biotech, if you are successful, you can alter the the state of the human condition in a, in a profound way that is probably unmatched in most other positions at large organizations. Mm. Um, but there's a risk that you will work for years and it will turn to nothing. And you need to be okay with that. And ask yourself whether that level of anxiety, um, whether you have the determination to battle through tough days, you have the capacity to pivot um, or or recognize um, if if things don't work and, and to be able to have the ability to pull people together and listen to them, all these things that we talked about. If, if that sounds like something that your day-to-day grind, you'll be able to tolerate for years um, and you're and you're willing to have setbacks and fight forward. Then then this could be and and what you care about is the big growth. If you if you're in it because you think you're going to make more money, I just I I, <laughs> I think you're going to be frustrated the whole time and you're going to feel like the grass is greener on the other side of people who just have cushy jobs in an organization who are doing reasonably well and it's safer. I think if your goal is to go accomplish something great, and yeah, there could be a huge payout at the end. But I think if that's what you're focusing on, you're I don't think you're going to wash out. And so I would just ask people to make sure that they feel that they have the temperament to accomplish this. And if they're doing it for the right reasons and that they are um, prepared to be battle hardened in order to go on the epic journey. Perfect. Yeah. Well, look, I think that that kind of is a really good place to end, um, a really good note to leave with people to think about, kind of encapsulates everything we've spoken about today having the right end goal in mind, making sure you're not just starting something up for acquisition and and just for monetary purposes. Um, So yeah, look, I know I've taken a huge amount of value from this. I know those listening will take a huge amount, especially people maybe looking at starting their own biotech companies um, or any other venture for that note, um, but more so on the biotech side. So yeah, I I appreciate you guys taking the time, hugely valuable and um, looking forward to seeing the reaction. Thanks so much for having us. Cheers guys, thank you so much. I'd like to thank both Jake and Stephanie again for their time and the insight they provided in this discussion. I hope anyone who is interested in any of the points we discussed during this episode could gain some valuable perspectives from the story. Check out the rest of our CM Conversation series for plenty more insight from industry leaders in life science across a range of topics and markets. Thanks again for listening. I've been your host, Jack McLean. Bye for now.